0: Welcome to the strange brew podcast my name's jason barnard and that was the knack and that's what the little girls do from the the new knack live album live at the house of blues out on liberation hall and i've got the huge honor to welcome prescott now a bassist for the knack a huge welcome prescott it's
1: very kind of you
0: good morning so that album, Live at the House of Blues, that dates from September the 25th all the way back from 2001. That's a, a strange period in history, isn't it?
1: Well, it's strange, but I've been asked that question before. But considering what's going on in today's world, it's even stranger. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, was the audience upbeat or you know, what was the general mood? I think everybody needed a relief, a release as well at that point, uh, being that it was pretty close to what happened. If it was in New York, it would be a little more uh, dark, so to speak, the feeling we all had. Um, we were launching the new album coming out, so I think once we got there and the people were very happy to check out, we didn't have 24-hour news or all the internet stuff, so people could be in the moment and not be looking at their phones every eight seconds, which actually was not pre- prevalent then. And we played quite a f- number of songs, as you know, from including you know parts from each of our albums. And it went very well. I didn't know at the time we were recording live. It's, it's a nice surprise when I got a call from Tony, Smile Records, and he told me what he was going to do and I got very excited, considering it's been that long since I, I heard it.
0: And that's the thing about the NAC, the known as a great live group.
1: Yes, it was very youthful. Our new drummer David Holmes. Come Holmes Jones, he kind of had an elvis look, uh, which I liked very much. But he had a lot of energy and it was it was a new era for us as we prior to that album, we used Terry Bozio, which we can get back to later. Bruce Gary was certainly for me as a bass player, uh we had a terrific relationship and get into that later, how I met him and everything. And then of course Billy Ward was on our third album, a great j- uh, drummer from New York, and f- finishing our career with Pat Torpy from Mr. Big. So Yes, the drum is very important. So this was David's first show with us, and looking back on it, it was it was exciting because he added so much to it. And the tempo was a little quicker too. I think the exuberance was very much in, uh, very much evidence, so to speak.
0: It feels very much like a, almost like a, a greatest hits set live.
1: Well, that's what I like because anybody, anybody that I think, I mean, people know the knack. Unfortunately, some people restrict their awareness. I think our third album that we did with Jack Douglas called Round Trip not only shows the different styles that we all shared together, but Jack Douglas being getting the best audio sound for us, really getting a lot of bottom end, which I greatly appreciated. And his expertise and just coming off of John Lennon's album, it was just a real excitement working with Jack. And I think that was an excellent job. And Serious Fun as well. Don West produced it. And I think it was a kind of a change from Maybe more, it was harder rock than pop. But again, I was very proud of the, uh, the quality of the songs and our performances.
0: What we're going to do now is take the listener through a journey through your career and then into the knack. Many people don't know your story in music goes back at least a decade prior.
1: Well, I grew up in Brooklyn Yeah, and it was a good place to grow up. My parents, you know, they loved to listen to the radio, of course, and a lot of people did. There wasn't many other options. And then I'll go back. Which obviously, the Beatles. Everybody has the same. Every musician that picks up a guitar after the Ed Sullivan show has the same kind of hair-raising excitement. That go, "What is this?" You know, I had seen Elvis, and Elvis was great. But his, you know, his his, again back in that day was a vocalist that always had a backing band, and that's that's pretty much what you saw. The Beach Boys were different, and I, I liked them very much too. You know, I played a little acoustic guitar at the time, but it took a while to fully engage. We drove cross-country with my family in 65, and after seeing California and the whole music scene there, coming back to New York, I decided rather than be a baseball player, which I had uh, scholarships to go to college, kind of said, I don't think so. So that started me really getting serious about music. I got in the band pretty quick right after that.
0: Yeah, that led up to, is it the Velvet Turner Group?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So anyway, I started playing around with some local bands, and being a bass player... Well, first of all, I wish I could have drummed at the time, but I lived in an apartment in Brooklyn, so that was ruled out. Rhythm guitar wasn't interesting, and lead guitar knew took a long time. But growing up with James Jamerson's bass lines and Motown, which I loved, the Beatles, uh, certainly as McCartney progressed, it it really caught my ear. And I'm going, you know what? I I love bass, and I'd rather play bass than anything else. That's when I started to get serious about it. So I was in a band in a week. And I played Learn Midnight Hour, Expressway to Your Heart, uh, and Mustang Sally pretty quickly. So that got me in most bands, so to speak. Well, one mm. day, Velvet um, came down to rehearse. I didn't know who Velvet was. I mean, somebody said there's a guy from uh, Brooklyn coming down to audition as a lead singer. And, you know, Velvet walks in, and I'm looking at him. going, well, kind of looks like Jimmy. He's taller, but his clothes are like, wow, they're kind of remind me of Jimmy. So we, we played through a few songs. And, you know, he said, guys, I really enjoy playing. I said, let me ask you something. Velvet, right? Everybody says velvet. Uh-huh. But he's got the R in it. And throughout our career, it's always the same thing. So I said, so um, let me ask you, you know, those clothes remind me of Jimi Hendrix. And he goes, well, yeah, I uh, actually borrowed, it, borrowed the shirt. From, from who? He said, Jimi Hendrix. And I'm going, no. you know. He said, no, really? And I go, okay, I'll take your word for it. So uh, you want to get together one day? So anyway, a few months go by and we talked to each other a few times. And then he called me and said, Jimmy's playing Phil on a Call in New York. This is 1968. And why don't you come down? And I got tickets and afterwards, you know, he's got a birthday party. And I'm going, yeah, so are you invited? He goes, I know where it is. I go, okay, great. So already I'm getting pretty excited taking the long train ride to Manhattan. (laughs) And we get there and yes, we have tickets. We go to Phil on a Call. Jimmy was playing some songs from uh, the second album, Axis Bold as Luck, which is one of my favorite albums. After we played, take a train, we're uptown, we go to the Cheetah Club and Jimmy's 25th birthday party. And then I'm thinking, how did I get here? Literally just being in the audience and, uh, you know, I wouldn't get near Jimmy. I was paralyzed, you know, after that initial uh, excitement, so to speak. And by the way, I had seen Jimmy earlier that year in Fillmore East, which is a very memorable show for a lot of people. So already, uh, that's, where I, that's where I got my music, that was my college of musical education. Because of Velvet having, uh, having known Jimmy, I got to meet Jimmy a couple of times, you know, at a hotel, at a restaurant, and I just pretty well kind of waved, you know. He was pretty shy, uh, and it was people anyway. Everybody wanted to get something from him at that point. So I just was acknowledging it, but because of meeting Velvert, instead of being in the audience, I was backstage for the first time. So I was able to go backstage at Fillmore or go backstage at other concerts and see what the music world was really like. Talking about Fillmore, one of the first shows I saw there was The Who. I Can See From it was out. And I just had to see him live. And I, I found pictures in some books somewhere where they actually showed pictures from that concert. Well, who being who they were, like nobody else, I fell in love with their music anyway. Watching John play kind of really showed me how bass could be taken a certain direction. And of course, you know, Keith Moon was a whole nother entity all to himself. I just loved it. It, it was so exciting. And, you know, seeing other bands, I, that same summer, um, I saw The Who play. I saw the Four Tops. I didn't know James Jamerson was a bass player at the time. The Vanilla Fudge, I saw pretty much in Manhattan. And, you know, he, Tim Bogart obviously became a uh, virtuoso bassist. Uh, Kareem is one of my favorite bands, by the way. And, of course, Jack Bruce. So those are some of my influences at the time, which made bass not just a backing instrument, kind of more of a forefront instrument. It kind of drove the, the uh, musicality of you know, the songs. Anyway, so with Velvet, um, we got to hang out, We put a band together, played a couple of songs, and then I got a chance to go to California for a few months. This is in 1970. And while I was in California, we uh, heard the tragic news that Jimmy had passed away. And that was a shocker, you know, at that point. How can somebody set 27 be here and gone so quickly? Gilbert told me to come back to New York There were people interested, went back to New York and found out that um, Michael Lang, who promoted Woodstock, uh, we had to do a demo first. Of course, we went into record plan, we cut a song, one song. And from that one song, we got a a major record deal from the time. Got $100,000 from Gulf and Western, which is part of Paramount. And uh, they assembled the team Tom Wilson would produce. And Gary Calderon, who really uh, made Record Plant, what it was, was our engineer. And I'm pretty excited, you know, going, wow, you know, and we signed our record dealing with Stock, New York, which adds to the, uh, the kind of puts a thing, a uh, bookmark. Uh, anyway, so we got a chance and, we, and uh, we, Tom Wilson wanted to go to England, I mean, uh, California to do the album. So that's how I got to California. When we started recording, it became evident that evident rather that Jimmy was, I mean, Velvet was not Jimi Hendrix. I think the hype was that maybe he would not be the Jimmy, but he would be along certain lines. So as we were performing on the album, and by the way, one of the songs, if we talk about bass technique, it's very interesting song I wrote, how I, had, I approached it. And after that, um, we started recording it halfway through, we played a few shows. Um, The record company, Michael's company, kind of went underground, didn't work out. And then we were signed by Family Productions. And that took me up to uh, 72. And then at that point, we broke up. I played with Arthur Lee briefly, did a TV show. Arthur Lee was from Love, as you know, and he had an album out called Vindicator. And he was kind of losing his mind at the time. Some say it's drugs. Some say it's brain deterioration. I don't know. But um, it didn't last too long. And then I got a chance to go to Boston, which was, you know, uh, somebody told me when I started playing music that as long as they give you a round-trip ticket, go wherever they ask you to go. And that's how I got to England later on too, by the way, Uh, an opportunity.
0: Just before we get to England, most of the materials down has been – written by velvet from the album but there is there is one song that you've got a, a writing credit on actually three oh three
1: yeah three huh. funny thing was about the song that got us the record deal velvet and i rehearsed and velvet said played a riff and i go what's that he says well i heard you know i was at jimmy's and he played it and you know i i said he velvet told me he asked jimmy like so like you know it's a cool riff can i use it so apparently According to Velbert, he said, yes, we recorded the album. We got the record deal on the one song called Freedom. Okay. and Velbert Turner was credited as writer. Two years later, Cry of Love comes out and oh, Jim. So instead of Velbert Turner writing it, it says, uh, you know, a tribute version by Velbert Turner. So we got a record deal on a song that Velbert didn't write and nobody knew that Jimmy had freedom.
0: Again, not many people know this, that you in the mid 70s, you were in England.
1: And that was a great time period, by the way. I got a chance. American guitarist who I worked with told me he had a a backer from England that wanted to take him over and put a band together. And, you know, I played with Jeffrey Jeffrey Mitchell. I played with him in L.A. And he called me and said, hey, you know, you want to go to England? Sure. I'd been there before, but only very briefly. So he flew to New York, I got my stuff together, and um, we flew to England together to put this band together. We did some recording, it took a while to get all the backing. So I was actually able to live in different people's homes. So we got a house in a big estate in Crawley. We were called the Americans when we went shopping. There's the Americans. So we were near Rygate, near Crawley. And because we live there, we can go party in London every night take the train from Victoria Station to Gatwick Airport and then take a cheap cab ride to go home and uh, I had the good fortune of uh, meeting Rose Taylor at the time you know Taylor's wife and we had a friendship and because of her I was able to get into a place called Tramps a very exclusive nightclub at the time and you meet all kind of people there you know I mean the Stones went there and everybody that all the actors in London went there but because of the connection I got to see the Stones play as well, and also hear the Debbie uh, the rough tapes for Goats Head Soup before it even came out. So I mean I, I was just you know a guy hanging out. I was nineteen, but having met these people, our manager also was uh, uh, part of EG Management. He was a friend of who uh, I think it was Brian, so who managed Yes, and the uh, manager for King Crimson was there. So I got to be kind of around those people. I got to see Yes a number of times. One of my favorite bands we put an album together we did it and waited and waited and waited to follow through we played swansea university when students took over to the college which was fascinating by the way first first shut in ever was part of and um it was a good time in london so we went as far as we can go i will say one thing we came back to la in the summer after the first year we had a scottish drummer but he seemed to be a little too reckless and a little too inebriated all the time so we came back to LA for a week off. We auditioned a few drummers. Bruce Garrett was one of the drummers we auditioned. And we were hoping Bruce Garrett would come back to England. Bruce had been doing a lot of sessions in LA and had a reputation. And we, I had met him and thought it would be wonderful. But instead of going to play with us, he went to England to play with somebody else. Uh, the group broke up It came back to California in 75. And how I got back to LA was Bruce was playing with a group man, uh, managed by Rick L, who also managed Sean Mayall. And we were supposed to go on tour with John Mayall at an opening band. Well, that fell apart and Bruce went back to England, by the way. Uh, in 78, Bruce, I had played in a lot of bands in L.A. at the time, trying to find the right one or a mix of the two. Bruce came back to L.A. and called me and said, hey, I got this new thing I'm doing. I've been working with Doug and Burton. And Bur- Doug was playing bass, but he wants to play rhythm guitar. And he goes, you're perfect. I go, really? He goes, yeah. You know, you kind of look like Paul McCartney. You play like John. That So I said, yeah, that's me. (laughs) And I went down, we jammed, and all of us knew that, you know, apart from the material that was going to come later on, they had some songs, but we all knew that this was not a normal band. This had a great amount of energy and great craftsmanship in the music. And, you know, Doug was a very powerful vocalist at the time. He was was more like into the Johnny Rotten vibe, by the way. A lot of people don't know that. There's a song called Art War. There's a live clip of the first whiskey show we ever did. And Doug's kind of miming like uh, Johnny Rotten. And it's a great song, but um, we, we were more than just being a pop band is what I'm trying to say. And after playing our first show, we all agreed to go forward. And we did not stop playing pretty much for a year straight. We played all the clubs, two sets a night. Well, there's a myth that later developed that Capital put us together, paid for us, and then... Made the album like the Beatles. So basically, they, it's like revisionist history. Capital created us, and therefore, it's another reason to resent our big success. Polygram was one of the group, a record companies that bidded on us, and they offered us quite a substantial amount of money, a million dollars, you know. And other record companies were interested. But if you, if you get a million up front, you can owe a million. So Capital was coming down to a lot of our shows. And we were becoming a very popular band in L.A., not because of our great live shows, but uh, Eddie Money jammed with us one night. We did two tickets for Paradise. Tom Petty jammed with us at the Troubadour. And it's great because he kicked over a bunch of uh, tables, and glasses while he was playing. We did Mona and Not uh, Fade Away. Uh, Bruce Springsteen jammed with us. Yeah. Our drummer Bruce had met Bruce and Bruce came up and we jammed with him which started to get... Stephen Stills also came up with us at the figure. He wa- I mean, Troubadour, he wanted to produce us. And as talented as Steve was, it wasn't the right... Let's say he was. He kind of checked out a little bit. We also jammed with Ray Mandarra, and We got a chance to do a few door songs. So we actually got to uh, the respect of, the, of musicians. The public really liked us a lot. And we
0: were different. We were new.
1: And nobody hyped us. Nobody promoted us. Nobody made us
0: into anything. There's all these potential producers and Mike Chapman. How did he come in, into the band's orbit?
1: Well, living in England, as I have from 73 to 75, I didn't know that Mike and, and Nikki Chin wrote half of the pop songs that everybody was doing. And Mike was in a band himself. Uh, all the groups, Sweet, among others. I mean, he was like the guy. He came down to see us and we um, were trying to find producers then. And Mike said, you guys are great. You know, I'd like to work with you and, and you should just come in the studio and just play live. He loved the live show so much. He said, guys, just do you. You know, I just want to get what I saw on stage. Well, Jimmy Iovine was a name kicked around. Who's a great producer. And there's a lot of people that we thought could be good. But I, I think Mike was very, his, his enthusiasm. And then I kind of figured out who Mike was. I was so happy to realize this guy knew about pop songs, he knew about hit songs, and he was a great guy to hang out with. He had great style, he had great taste, and he could be hilariously funny, which Mike is kind of known for. So we all said we want to go with Mike Chapman, the deal was arranged, and we went in to start recording. Capital, we decided to go with, and they were very enthusiastic at the time, and and we were as well. So we went into a studio in Glendale, which is not a popular studio, most people record in Hollywood, but Mike felt comfortable. That was his studio. So the first day we went in there to record, Blondie was working down the hallway. So Mike was producing Blondie in Studio A, and we were Studio C, and he's doing us, okay? So, and, and I knew who Blondie was. and Of course, i love to see Deborah Harry walk down the hallway, I just because it was like, yeah, okay, she's a wonderful, wonderful human being. So when we started recording, they were doing Heart of Glass at the time, like, because it kind of put it together. Mike also did a writing credit and sung some harmonies. We started doing our album. We finished our album in two weeks or less. We mastered it, mixed it, and um, Blondie was still working through their way through their album, especially Heart of Glass. No knock, because everybody works at a different speed, yeah. and Mike is a producer. Mike uh, decided he didn't want to do any hardly any production. He just wanted to capture the live sounds and get it as vibrant and as well-recorded as possible. He had suggestions, but Mike, when we recorded Sharona, that was like the second day we did it because we are running through all the songs. And Mike said, okay, guys, you know, some people, you know, they go, let's do a run-through, which a lot of people, you know, and then we get the levels and we do it. We did a run-through and Mike goes, okay, I got it. And you go, what do you mean you got it? He said, no, we, we got to take, let's move on. We're going, what are you talking about? We just ran it through. And Mike says, yeah, well, listen, you got it. And we go, oh, Mike, come on. We, okay. We went in and listened and you know, it's us, but Mike, he said, do you understand what I'm hearing? He goes, there's sometimes when you do a song too many times recording with anybody, sometimes it loses its freshness and you start overthinking it. And just going through it as thinking we're just kind of doing a, you know, just running through it. We played it with such a bandit, not worrying about anything. And Mike said, this is it, you know, and we heard him go, that's pretty good. Right. And trusting Mike as, as a producer, because you think if the, this song you're working on is potentially going to be the hit single, he'd want it to be perfect. And all Burden did was overdub a couple of minor sections and dug over a couple of a, a vocal flux. Right. That was it. So the album was done in three weeks. Two things happened. Number one, record companies started to say, well, if the Nat can do an album for 17000 why can't A, B, C, and D do it for that? So then we, that started to get the, the uh, kind of resentment for us by bands, which I hated because we, all we did was do us. And they're going, why the hell do we have to do a record? We're not them, right? We need more time. Aerosmith took a while, by the way, when Jack Douglas worked with him. But it doesn't matter. The final product at all that matters. And Mike Chapman also was the first person to say you have a number one. Yeah. And I wrote down in my journal. I said, Mike Chapman said it could happen. this worked to our favor when I'm going to say next Capital did not release a single Ooh. most most record companies will release like Good Girls Don't for instance became our second hit but nobody remembers that even though it was top 10 and uh, some people will lead with a song get people interested then come with the hit that's kind of a, a formula back then we were touring Europe at the time by the way before we came back to LA and uh, we found out that the album was released and Sharona became the most requested song in america so what happened was they kept playing the album and then capital had to do a rush release of the single and there's an edit on the guitar solo the sad thing is that a lot of people when the 45 came out didn't un- didn't hear the whole solo which to me was like that was one of the in my opinion not be that's one of the most underrated underappreciated but when people talk about it they say that's an amazing solo what a brilliant guitar player I mean, for a pop band, we were pretty great musicians. And that solo, even to this day, stands out. And by the way, the first time I heard The Knack on the radio is when we played Liverpool. Isn't that ironic? Hmm. We are in a pub uh, across from Merrick's Place, whatever they, we call the, the the cavern. And Good Girls Don't, we heard on the radio. And, we, and now it's like, wait a minute, we're in Liverpool and we're hearing our song on the radio. We came back home. The album was number one first and then the single caught up. So I was very happy about that because it, it, more people got a chance to hear the album. There was a lot of excitement and we did a U.S. tour and things were going pretty well. They did, did start to be, let's say, blowback from our success. That's when people said, oh, who are these guys? Who do they think they are? They come out of nowhere and they have a number one hit. And well, we're not uh, some pre-made group in the studio. You know, we just played ourselves. So that started some resentment. The critics started to say, you know, who do these guys think they are? Do they think they're the Beatles? Now, nobody ever talked about us being like the Beatles. Uh, Robert Hilburn, a very famous L.A. critic, had an article where he put our picture, and underneath it, reversed, was the Meet the Beatles album. So our album had nothing to do with that. My, a good friend of mine, photographer, Rennie St. Nicholas, who went on to have great success, she wasn't even a photography then. She just did her shots and just, you know, guys stand there. So what, after that article came out, people started drawing erroneous comparisons. They're going, well, they were trying to be the Beatles. No, if you listen to the album, it sounds more like The Who or The Clack yeah. or uh, The Kinks. Because Bruce's drumming was, you know, had Keith Moon moments and very, very much a leading instrument. I, I did simplify my playing. I had to meet the songs. I'm not going to overplay you know, to just to show off. But the songs itself had some really good bass parts. Then there was a guy up in Frisco that developed a way to make money. He did a thing called Nuke the Knack. That was a way for him. He was selling T-shirts that are saying Nuke the Knack and bumper stickers that said, hop if you slept with Sharona. But uh, I we met him at a Capital swap meet. You know, every year they'd have a swap meet where people buy old vinyl. And myself and Bruce brought his stuff and took a picture with him. Because we were going, it's okay, we don't care what you're doing, you know. The commercialization of us was more so done by the critics and by people in the business, not us.
2: She's your adolescent brain Schoolboy stuff, a sticky, sweet romance Makes you wanna scream, wishing you could get inside her pants. So you been sides away while you're squeezing her. You thought you heard. And she says she's all alone And her parents won't be coming home till late heard she's pretty fast and you're hoping that she'll give you some tonight so you stop. know you
0: about that second album, but the little girls understand tracks on that like baby talks dirty one of the, the singles from that can I
1: ask you about that how old were you when
0: you heard it teenager probably about okay. 30 years ago
1: okay so before we doing this you know you've heard this song what was your impression of it just you know off the record or on record
0: the sort of the lyrics can kind of, for some people can be off putting, but then there's a little
1: a little jolting, yes.
0: But there's humor as well. It's not it's not necessarily to be totally taken seriously.
1: Well, that's a very good point. Well, some of the critics in the early part of the days said we were misogynists. People, what's that? <laughs> well, misogynist means you know that the lyrics are degrading to women. Now I'm thinking, how can they call us misogynists when you have blatantly sexual lyrics from some of the heart maybe and I love Steven Tyler and, and all you know Robert Plant, they're brilliant. But they are sexual lead singers and nobody cares. But we, we're all talking about the same thing and in essence, right? boy and a girl and whatever it is, we define it. First of all, we didn't have to do a second album. We only released two songs. And I felt myself frustrated would have been a good single, depending on what your taste is, you know. You know, some people really liked Otara. I, I loved uh, Selfish, by the way. It's one of my favorite songs. And that could have been edited and be a, a hit. For some reason, we got back and Capitol didn't ask us to do a second album. I think Doug, riding the wave of our great success, had it in his head that we should just go in and do another album. We had other material that we had written. And it, you know, let's say, I think, on that first album, all the best songs were used. Okay, that we had written to the time we did replace a lot of the songs we first started with, because I told you, as the band evolved, you know, the style of the band dictated the songwriting style. I didn't feel comfortable about it. Mike Chapman was going through some marital discord. It's another way to say, you know, (laughs) something else. He totally wasn't in. In other words, he wasn't the same gregarious Mike. He was a little more somber. And I think that to me was a sign that this is not great. Coming back uh, on tour, we were talking about a new single and Baby Talks 30 came up. And when I read the lyric and I listened, I said, You know, I know you like to be nasty, Doug. However, they're not going to play it on the radio. And he said, Yeah, they are. Fuck them. You know, that was an attitude he had, right? And I thought it was a good song. However, how come nobody realized when you have such a big hit as Sharona, you better make darn sure? And whatever you're going to put out has got to be equally as good. You can't take it for granted. We're doing another album. eh, You know, that song set us up for more success or failure. And and to go in the studio and the album has got really good songs in it. Agreed. You know, I like the album. However, that lead song I knew was going to be compared to Sharona, And knowing that, I was I just couldn't understand it. I said the lyrics too controversial. Do you know it was barred in England? They didn't play the song? No. BBC didn't play it. And again, maybe if it was a different band, nobody would have noticed it. But when you're singing, you know, some of the lyric, it's a little too, not even suggestive. It's erotically in your face. And we, now we were nominated for a Grammy for best band, new band, and also song of the year. Um, I would have paid somebody to go to the Grammy Awards just to be there, let alone to be nominated for two awards. Unfortunately, for some reason, the only reason I bring these points up, because these are career decisions that affected everything. And not doing, it's bad enough we didn't do Midnight Special or some of the other shows in America that featured bands. We were offered to be in the Morgan Mindy show. We would have just, hey, the knack have landed. Who knows, right? 80 million people would have saw us. Uh, it wasn't the perfect vehicle, apparently. We're asked to be on Fridays. That uh, preceded Saturday Night Live. Our manager, who is more of a novice and maybe got to be a little bit too uh, narcissistic, said that if we're going to be on Friday Night Live, we need to co-host. Well, that was stupid, Okay. We were offered a few specials. Now Dick Clark really wanted us on his show and wanted to do a short movie with us because we were a phenomenon at the time. And not only we didn't we approve of the writ, we were an American Bandstand. And to me, if you don't, that's a cardinal sin. You cannot think. And Dick Clark liked us. Biggest problem was everybody knew us, but nobody really knew us. And if we ha- and we're really good in interviews and, and, and things. We, we did TV in, in Italy. We did it in Japan. We did the Top of the Pops. We did Australian TV. Why didn't we do American TV? Then all of a sudden we were snobs. We didn't. We said no to this guy. We said no to somebody else. And then the backlash uh, was too obvious. Capital went ahead and released the second album. No, we didn't go to the Grammys. Because I guess Doug was saying, well, it's just an award show. No, I don't think so. So the album came out without us debuting it anywhere in America. We didn't do a big concert. We didn't do, the album came out charted very high and and Baby Talks Dirty entered 14 and, you know, dropped pretty quickly because they said, this is not Sharona. And that was what I was worried about. The quality of the album, the songs that were written didn't matter anymore. It was just a comparison to Sharona. So that started down with trajectory. We eventually broke up after that. But um, and you can well imagine because it was all this turmoil and we did what. Capital were pretty upset at what happened, but they still were on the label. And then we broke up for a little while.
0: I mentioned breaking up, but was that before or after Round Trip? And was Round Trip the album that no, you know that
1: was, that was our comeback album. Oh, right. Yeah, we had broken up. Bruce and Doug always had a very um, well, it was a complicated relationship, but it was usually very uh very dramatic and a lot of yelling. And you know, Bruce was the most accomplished who had done a lot of sessions and was well known. So you know, he had a lot to say about what we were doing, but I think his opinions maybe didn't come off that well. So we had our differences. And with the failure of the second album, which obviously, you know, why would you not have released again, throwing off our third album, said it a lot. And so we broke up. Doug was a little uh, narcissistic at that point. Well, we're going to go on anyway. Well, when John Lennon was assassinated, when that happened, of course, we're huge Beatles fans, I called Doug. And I said, look, you're as devastated as me, probably. And by the way, he was living with Sharona then. uh, They ended up together. Maybe because we're number one, but they ended up together, okay? And uh, she's wonderful. She's a top real estate selling these days. She's a wonderful person, by the way. I threw that in. So I talked to Doug and went over and we said, so we all decided we're going to get together again. Now, we were going to start a new group at the time, our manager said. We ended up firing our managers because we found out how many people he alienated by his demands. So we all decided to get back together. We're trying to figure out what producer we wanted. And with John Lennon's album coming out then, we I mean, you can't get George Martin. So how about Jack Douglas? And here in the Aerosmith records and other things, he was a great producer. And we weren't sure he'd want to do it because of, you know, what he was dealing with. And he said, no, I really want to work with an act. So that was a big ego lift for all of us. And he was still dealing with a lot of legal things with uh, uh, Yoko at the time. So he was kind of in a happy mood and sad, and plus the reality of what just happened a few months earlier was still devastating for him. But we went into record plan, and uh, to my ears, the full range of our musical styles, our performances, Doug's and Burton's writing of lyrics, the great stories. You know, The Boys Go Crazy is, to me, a perfect song to answer from Good Girls Don't. The boys go crazy when the girls say no. I mean, if that that should have been the single, by the way. And I commercially, it's brilliant. Uh, radiating love that starts the album. It's a great hook, psychedelic. Jack Douglas got the best bass sound I ever got in my life, by the way. And the drum sound as well. I have to say that because the knack yeah. bass, you know, it was recorded okay, but it didn't have like a lot of bottom oomph. And Jack just sonically, it was our best album. And I think the songwriting, Little Cow's big mistake is very jazzy. Kind of like you know, almost like Donald Fagan when he you know, yeah. from his group, and of course um, Africa. Now Burden and I were big Earthwind and Fire fans at the time, so Burden wrote a lot of that song. Doug wrote the lyric, and it's very funky. When I play it for people, nobody knows who it is. And then we had a "Just Wait and See," which is a beautiful uh, love song. Which is you got the twelve string. Burton was a great, again great guitar player, very Holly Holly's like uh, lead. And I really like all the songs and uh, Burton wrote a song called pay the devil, which is a country song and which is great for what it is. Okay. And then another lousy day in paradise is a great song. So you can tell, I really like the album. It's all kissing. I think should have been a single. It was the best of all, everything we could do to show people. We weren't just created in a test tube and that, you know, here we are, some pop people know it was a great album. And um, we were really excited because Jack did it. And unfortunately, Capital, do you know what single they picked? Pay the Devil. Yeah. Well, why would you pay the devil? Meaning it's about karma. So couldn't that be taken by the press as the knacker paying the devil his dues? Get it? Nobody thought about that. But why would the Knack have a country ballad sent to radio? Now, it's a great song. And I think the hook is wonderful and the performances are wonderful. But still, to this day, I never understood. That was the single and somehow everybody agreed to it. So unfortunately that became, the, and the critics actually gave us good reviews for the first time. Unfortunately, it was the wrong single and it was hard to get momentum at that point.
0: What did you do after the group split for the, the rest of the the 1980s then?
1: Oh well I, I worked now myself, Burton, and Bruce were still very close. So we were going to put a new band together and we enlisted Steven Bauer. Stephen Bauer is an actor. Uh, let me see. He's in a lot of movies, Steve Hearts, but the main movie he was in was with Al Pacino, Scarface. He was his brother. I mean, he he married, his, yeah. you know what I'm saying. At the time, this guy who wanted to manage us. And I had connections, too. We, we rehearsed together, and Stephen was not a great singer, but he looked damn good. So we were negotiating a deal with Virgin at the time. And we were very – Doug was doing his own thing on the side. And I also had been playing around in L.A. with a group called Population 5. So we actually did our own musical things anyway as a result of breaking – you know, we weren't sitting around. We were going to get a deal with Virgin. Unfortunately, our manager got arrested. <laughs> Things happen, don't they? By the way, we didn't talk about George Harrison yet.
0: Let's talk about George Harrison. So that, that was the, the mid-1980s, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Well, luckily for me, I had met George Harrison when I lived in England. I was dating a particularly attractive woman that was best friends with Derek Taylor's secretary. And Derek Taylor was always been the Beatles publicist in George Harrison's. So, as a result of me dating Kathy, uh, I was not only able to be around certain people, but also at that club I told you about, Tramps. George would go there quite often. So, I was introduced to him there. And I tell people, well, before I played music with George, I danced with him. And people always give me a funny look, you know, because everybody would be on the dance floor, right? At the same time, and we'd all be dancing. So he would dance, and what we danced to, Stevie Wonder's Innovisions just came out, and that's one of the best albums ever. So we're dancing, whether the Superstition or Higher Ground or Living for the City, by the way, which is still devastating. So one day I get a call in 86 um, saying from a guy, he says, listen, my name's Bob Rose, I'm a producer. You were recommended, I'm doing a session, I'd like you to come. I said, who is it with He goes, I can't tell you. I go, you mean he's a nobody? I go, no, he's a somebody. I go, there's a lot of somebodies. He wouldn't tell me, all right? So I went down to the studio and walked in, and I said, George, right? And I go, oh, my God, I'm at George Harrison session. Then I got nervous just because, right? I didn't expect to be there, and thank God I was. You never know. And I met him, and and I said, I know you're not going to believe this, but remember in England, he says, oh, yeah, Kathy. And so he hit base, and he goes, And he says, you're with the knack. That's what Bob Rose was doing. I like, you know, I like your music. And to me, that was, I wasn't just George, like, oh, I love you, George. He actually knew our music. So that made me less nervous. Uh, The drummer was Jim Keltner. Mm -hmm. And Jim is a legend, as you know. And Jim's a very different drummer than Bruce Gary. Jim's way back in the pocket. So I started to get nervous because I'm used to pushing everything. I said, okay, Lawrence Juba was a guitar player from, you know, who played with Paul McCartney. So we, were, George was very cool in the studio. He's like, sometimes I'll play a riff from I Feel Fine and Laugh and go, oh, we know that one, you know. And so I was in the studio in the recording, in, in the actual booth recording my bass part, looking at a chart. George always has weird chord changes, by the way, or unexpected chord changes, right? So I'm playing, he's in the room, and I started to go, okay, Prescott, you better nail this, okay? Because you know what, I'm stopping the tape because I'm rushing... And or he didn't like what I played. So I tried to play as tasty as I could, never getting ahead of Keltner and somehow coming up with like signature lines or something. Well, thank you, God, because um, we did a few takes of it and that was it. It didn't stop the tape because of me. So that was my biggest worry, because when people are recording, you don't want to stop. If Jim Keltner does something great, but not me. So I was very proud of it. And uh, the song was called Someplace Else. And it's for the movie Shanghai Surprise. Uh, and I'm thinking, okay, what if I was supposed to get married a few months after that? And then I'm thinking, well, if the producer told me I might go to England because he's going to produce George. So I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to do this? Maybe I should, hmm, I don't want to like worry about, you know. So I'm thinking all this in my mind. So uh, Bob went over to work with George. And he called me, he says, well, Prescott, I'm sorry to tell you, I'm not going to be producing, and you're not coming over. I'm lucky I didn't call off the wedding, okay? But I found out that George, Jeff Lynn lived down the road from him. And when they got together, the greatest, that was the best for him anyway. And Plan 9, that album, and all those songs, and, and man, it was great. So, and he redid someplace else. But the trailer for the movie Shanghai Surprise, they used a the track I was on. And all I cared about was that, you know, I I did a session, I did another song, they didn't use it in the movie. I still have a copy of the letter from Dark Horse Records saying they've cut a check for $350 for me. That's like my proof that I did a session, you know what I mean? (laughs) But George was a a great guy and, you know, uh, I love his music as we all do.
2: I better take this taxi. It's Ted Luck. Did you ever wonder what might have happened if we'd met someplace else? The bar at the Coconut Grove or, or make it at a church picnic either Sunday.
0: <laughs> You've never been to a church picnic in your life. Oh
2: that's right, I hadn't. Ain't Burns for me, really. for what? For the intro. Hadn't been for him we'd never
0: met in a million years.
2: Hey. Oh. oh I'm sorry. I
0: don't mind. Oh. Serious fun, which is a great knockout. Oh, my- you,
1: li- you liked it. Now, we changed drummers, by the way, for that album, and we were going in a different direction. I think songwriting was was maybe we were getting harder edge. Don was was a good friend of Doug's from Detroit. So getting Don, who was on a winning streak at the time, to work with us was great. Now, we started playing again in L.A. because we did a benefit that some, one of the local promoters was sick. So when we, we played, and it was like, oh, this feels good again, right? And we go, why not do it? Charisma Records was interested. Now, they were an offshoot of Virgin. And they were a new company, so to speak, you know, part of Virgin. And they were really interested in signing us. And uh, Don was uh, saying, you know, let's do it. Right. So we got advanced. We went into City with Don. It took a little longer than earlier, but all the song, all our takes were pretty much one takes.
0: Tracks on there, like one day at a time, that are just sort of hidden gems in the Knack back catalog.
1: Thank you. That song, again, because of uh, being an AA. Yeah, as you know, one day at a time is one of the themes. but he wrote the song in a way where you think it's about a relationship, of course. Right. And but the message comes across and I was well recorded. And that was supposed to be our second single. Ra- Rocket of Love came, which is a real it's got Caldwell in it, which I love, by the way. Uh, it was a top it was a top 10 FM hit. And I was very happy. And uh, unfortunately, Charisma uh, had issues. With the uh, executive department, and they fell apart. So they had no money to promote. Was that,
0: Tony Stratton Smith? Dying? I think so.
1: Yeah, I think him. That was a problem. Uh, I'm, I feel something. Cordarreo was a, a head guy at the time. I think took over, and unfortunately, there were issues, and you know, with funding and what to do with the album because we didn't have a follow-up on AM radio. You know, we had a new management team as well. And we were arguing about, let's go AM, let's get an AM hit, right? But, you know, at that point, it was a moot point. that we were like oh great what are we going to do now luckily my Sharona was used in that movie right
0: reality bites
1: yes amen and now interesting we had two opportunities one was from Tarantino who wanted to use Sharona in Pulp Fiction wow okay now first of all nobody knew Pulp Fiction would become what it was the, song, the, the scene they wanted to use it in, by the way, was the scene in the pawn shop where there was a lot of country boys raping uh, big brains. And, you know, the scene, right? Yeah. Well, I I didn't think that was good to have Sharona associated with that sick guy, the Southerner, you know, and doing what he was doing. So Reality Bites was definitely the right way to go. And we were able to do a U.S. tour because of it.
0: Reality bites. It seemed to give the band a new impetus as, as you go into the '90s, and then there was new albums coming forth. A well-regarded now, like Zoom, with cool tracks on there, like "Harder on You."
1: Thank you. <laughs> I take a bow. We got back together again. Burton was very talented and wanted to write for Broadway, and he was. We had a partner, and they were writing a musical. So he tried some things, and he had. And now, as he was fully devoted to it, unfortunately. It didn't end up working out you know it's very difficult to get the funding and everything else so he was ready to get back on the road and we all were at the time and we played the viper room in la with bruce garrett again we got back with bruce but bruce uh, and our manager at the time was danny sugarman danny sugarman worked with the doors and wrote the book on the doors by the way so he became a manager, which was very interesting. And now Doug, I did a solo album prior to us getting back together. That wasn't released. When Danny heard it, he says, "No, no, you guys should just write a new album." So that's how I got when I got together was me, Doug, and Burton writing together, which was wonderful. We never did that before. And "Harder on You" is a song I wrote. I had Bill Hudson from the Hudson Brothers, who's a good friend of mine, and he did the vocals and we wanted to I wanted to get that song and that thing you do. It would have worked. Unfortunately, uh, when we submitted it, they loved it, but they already had all the songs at that point. So I said, you know, I called Bernie and I said, hey, man, this song I wrote, can we do this? And Byrne said he loved it. And he says, we need a little work on a bridge. So I work with him in the bridge. I gave him a writing credit because he deserved it, of course. But it's song I had written and hopefully got in that movie. And Doug really liked it. Now I was really impressed that he liked it, you know, because I'm a new guy, right? In terms of writing. <laughs> so we, we did it. It was going to be released as a single by Rhino. But unfortunately, they didn't know how to promote a new album. It was a great label. And uh, unfortunately we didn't have a lot of sales. Now we had gotten Terry Bozio. We thinking of different drummers to go with because Bruce was not happy with the arrangement business-wise and he just couldn't handle it. He was kind of being negative, you know? People said to me at the time, "Go, Terry will never play with the neck. He's into playing Jeff Beck stuff, the Mothers of Invention, you know? Well, Doug got to be friends with him and Terry wanted to join the band. It's the first time I think we all wrote together, like I mentioned. So that album, some of the songs have different, like uh, the song in Blue Tonight was a country song Doug wrote, and we had a different drummer on that track because this was things we didn't know would be together. Terry played on the majority of the tracks, and we also had some uh, other, we did some songs by other artists. We did that Thing You Do, by the way, it came out on a Rhino Greatest Hits album with an act. We also did uh, Girls Talk, Elvis Costello, And we did another song. uh, We did a couple of covers, in other words, of things, songs we liked, for instance. So that was really cool. We used Terry in like 20 tracks. Terry had a very elaborate drum kit, you know, about Terry Bozo at all? Yeah. He used to
0: have
1: a 25, 30-piece drum kit. So he brought his small drum kit of like 18 drums into the studio. But people didn't think Terry could play straight. There's a lot of songs in that album, like uh, Mr. Magazine which is a great song, Terry and Julie Step Out, and Harner and You were just playing straight, pocket stuff, and he played great. He was wonderful, and we started to do a tour, and unfortunately, without album, record company support financially, it wasn't really working very well. We played some great shows, and I thought with Terry Bozio drumming, you know, we're gonna get everybody on board, you know, all the people that are on the outside, Unfortunately, that tour stopped and Terry went on to do his, you know, he travels a lot and does all these clinics, very, very in demand guy. And unfortunately that was that. And I really liked the album by the way, because it was really a collaborative effort of us. And there's also a song I wrote called Tomorrow, which ends the album, which is a a, a cool riff I had written. And then Burton helped me with the chorus, this big chorus, you know, and I really think it's a, not because I, and Burden's solo was great on that. So I think that's something I that made me very happy that I had a chance to you know, contribute two songs to the album. And then, you know, again, it, it was good, but Terry moved on and then that was it for a while.
0: such a musical family the group gateway drugs is seems like a very much a, a family affair and songs like slumber have been making waves tell me about gateway drugs and, and your family
1: yeah and they did that video during the lockdown you know they did three songs wait uh revolution too i don't think you heard that one that's really cool so they did a video for that they did a video a really animated one too by the way because they had a record but there was no budget So they put together their own stuff in slumber. They're kind of walking around the streets. So Gabe, my son, the drummer, he sings that one. Noah sings lead in some songs. And my daughter, Olivia, also sings lead. So it's kind of a mix of different things. But they're really, and we did a version of uh, um, uh, that Count Five song,
0: you know. Oh, Psychotic Reaction. Yeah, yeah.
1: And they, they did it live. And I love the way they did it on the album, by the way. Growing up with me, they were exposed to not only all the English groups, Beatles, but they loved American music. You know the old stuff, the blues stuff, and, and you know they formed their own taste. But but they loved the punks. You know the psychedelic scene, and they're described as psychedelic somewhat. You know, and uh, they did some touring, which they did pretty well on the first album. You know, Magic Spells was the first album. They weren't happy with the production, but there's a lot of good songs there. And the second album, PSA, was really each song was well written, crafted, and recorded. Unfortunately, I always have to say that. And it came out in May, but got really good reviews. But unfortunately, COVID has look at all the bands that did big albums that disappeared completely. So they really couldn't play, but they're, you know, they've kept writing and stuff. And I had played Sharona, I did many clips on YouTube with my uh, Gabriel on drums, my daughter live on guitar. And some of it, you know, as in other shows we did, you know, I started teaching Gabe drums when he was four and we did cashmere in his preschool, by the way. And he's a very prolific drummer. And he is actually a, a, our, our go-to drummer when, when, you know, Terry Bozio never rejoined missing persons, but when the drummer for missing persons can't make it, my son sits in and there's a lot of great clips on YouTube of myself, him and Olivia, doing Sharona, and as well with Noah, too. But Liv actually never played guitar, and later on she came over and she started jamming and she played the solo. And then she uh, she plays bass, too. Noah plays bass, darn good, by the way, and plays guitar and loves box 12 strings, by the way. And Olivia is also a very good bass player and plays guitar live. So that's the nucleus of the band. And it's really cool because they went to, growing up, I always took them with me. Somebody said, or somebody that said, you know, a father that takes his kids to work with them is great. There's no separation. And there never was for me. So uh, I I think what they did was they jammed with each other a lot. And that's where ideas came. And I didn't have to babysit them. I never was, you know, when they would jam with me live, I didn't sit down and go, well, you made four mistakes. You're going to get a demerit. It wasn't about that. It was just learning I that's so how I did I get on stage jamming in the village when I was 18 after playing for three months and I got thrown off the stage a couple of times because I didn't know the chord changes to Stormy Monday.
0: We're playing She's So Selfish from the live at the House of Blues album Which uh, the new Knack uh, album we're talking about But um, Prescott, let's just talk about what you've been doing musically okay. Recently and, and, and missing persons and that kind of thing
1: Yes, I will And by the way, gratefully you're hearing such, She's So Selfish Because that's one of my particularly It's a great lyric, by the way It's very biographical about Sharona but I love the beat and I love the changes, how we change tempo and everything. So what am I doing these days? Well, Missing Persons, who I admired musically, and it's odd that I play with Terry Bozio for a while yeah. and not really realizing, you know, this is the same guy that was a Missing Persons, in other words. And I knew the yeah. songs, but not like that. And I've known Dale for years. I knew her before she took off her clothes. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> She did a hustler. She was a photo. She was working for a famous photographer, Moshe Brockow, in L.A. And I met her a few times. And she's from Boston, you know. And there's another guy from Boston who I was playing with, Greg Chansky, who knew Dale. So that's how I met Dale. And a, a lot of shows over the years, Dale was playing with us. Missing Persons and that, you know, Flock of Seagulls, any of those groups, Psychedelic Furs, you know. So we we liked each other from afar. She had two two sons, by the way, and there was a respect. So, and to, and uh, after Doug passed away, I was looking for stuff to do. And we met up, and she said, You know, press God, I'd love for you to play with us. You know, she had different incarnations of the band. Warren wasn't working with her anymore. He had joined Duran Duran before that. Terry was doing his clinics. He worked with Jeff Beck. You know, he was Tony uh, Levin, who's brilliant bass player, as you know. I liked the uh, missing persons music, and I said I'd love to play with you. So we started playing together, and we've had done a lot of shows, even up till today. Ooh. We got a couple of big shows coming. We're doing that big festival called uh, uh, Goodbye Cruel World coming up in LA. It's a, but every I don't know if you've seen it, but every group is headlining, and Blondie's playing. I mean, every group. So I'm doing that. I played with Gary Myrick. He actually put a group together with the guy from the Clash, Havana something it was called. So Gary had a few hits, Gary Myrick and the Figures. You know, she talks in stereo, is one of them. So Gary's putting his thing together. So we did some shows together. And there's an album out. Um, Carla, you know who Carla Olsen is? Oh, yeah, yeah, she's yeah. She's in the Tech yeah. Sounds. Well, yeah. she's wonderful. And she did an album called American Train Music. Songs about railroads, American Railroad, whatever it's called. And we do a track. We do another version of Train Kept a in our own way. And you should hear it. You know, Creedence, uh, John Fogarty's on there, and a lot of good artists. So I had the privilege to be on that. So missing persons is the main thing I'm doing, but I'm going to be doing stuff with Gary. I just played at the. Uh, we did a thing, and you know about uh, Chris did the Beatles. Yes. Chris Carter, the show here. So I've known Chris, and also as a result, uh, I've been on a couple of shows he's put on, playing Beatles songs or the whole album. So I have played bass on that.
0: What a great story you have, the musicians that you've played with. Well, it's,
1: a, it's a privilege. I mean, we're all musicians, and some people, you know, have different avenues, but I think because I grew up, and, and again, being at Woodstock, for instance, is an example of, I think that was a victory for the culture, and, and I thought of it because Altamont obviously was the flip side of that, but being in a place with a bunch of young people who are protesting the war, want peace, right? And we're celebrating 300,000 strong, right? I can't explain to people today that nobody was looking at phones. Nobody was distracted. Everybody was in that moment. And I thought that was a a big, big, so it was good to be part of that era and to see how how pure the art was before everybody made billions and billions, you know. And I love the music and I love the artists. And I think, um, you know, apart from the beat and seeing Jimi Hendrix again playing there, in front of hardly anybody that morning, and he did the He just did the art. Spangled Banner as a joke, and it became this whole counterculture movement, right? I was privileged to have been there as well for that time in life, you know. Yeah. So thank you, and um, you know, again, I, I still play. I, I love playing bass, but I do play guitar. I could, and I also love classical piano. I, I got into it, and first royalty check I got was a seven foot six Blutner piano. And I just relate. Those are the guys who wrote movie scores back in the day, if you know what I'm saying, right? With, with no movies. Mm-hmm. But I just love checking out of rock, and I love jazz, by the way, and hearing class, and then coming back. So I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to be talking to you. And I'm grateful that then that have an album coming out that I didn't even know existed. So um, I want to thank you again. And also, my kids' band uh, will make their return. And keep your ears and eyes open. By the way, I will make one preface. It was a South African band called Gateway Drugs, and they make electronic music. So if any of you listeners out there hear electronic synth music, you have to look again. So that's my cautionary note. Thanks a lot. Goodbye.